You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, music lovers. Welcome back to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I've got two of my co-hosts here. Singer, songwriter, solo artist, former drummer of the Aquanetas, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. And bassist, music enthusiast, and our resident Brit, Anthony Williams. Howdy. And our other co-host, Rob, is off gallivanting around the country, seeing shows. He saw Taylor Swift a couple of nights ago and Sparks last night. So he's going to have a lot to talk about when he rejoins us, I think, next week. In his absence, though, we are joined by a very special guest. This is Associate Professor of History, Matt Alshbach. Matt, how you doing? I'm so impressed that you got the pronunciation pronunciation of my name, and then I couldn't say pronunciation. <laughs> Beautiful, solid start. Welcome, solid Matt. Start. <laughs> I studied. No. Yeah, Alshbach is correct. Well done. Yeah. You're like one of five people that's actually got that nice. right. So thank you for that, and it's a, absolutely a real pleasure to be on the show. Matt and a friend of his named Cortland Lewis, who I've known for I don't know, I guess about ten years now, do a podcast together called The Rock and Metal Profs. Cortland is an associate professor of philosophy. So Matt, tell us a little bit about that podcast and how you got started doing it. Thanks, Helen. So uh, it was, you know, an idea that had been percolating for some time back in 2019. As you know, there are a lot of rock podcasts out there and it was really just a matter of learning the technology. We always had the will, we had the personality, you know, Court, and uh, neither he nor I have any problem um, talking to the public. We love the sound of our own voice. Please feel free to (laughs) cut me off if I'm just blathering on. Uh, But, you know, we we really were excited about doing it. We felt like we had a lot to say about the topic of rock and metal. And I wanted to approach it from a historical perspective, Court covering the philosophical implications. And it really just came together and what was most exciting is though it was not well produced i would say we immediately picked up a following within six months we had listeners on six continents which was just truly unbelievable and so it it took on a life of its own and then we felt compelled to continue with it because we never really gave it a shelf life and so we're in our third year we've got about 68 episodes out and you can find those on any of your favorite streaming platforms the rock and metal profs the history and philosophy of rock and metal. Right on. I find that fascinating because I, I myself, I, I'm a history graduate. So I have a master's in history. And that was one of the angles with my other podcast, which is a Doctor Who podcast. I wanted to approach the show looking at, at it in the context of the history and what was going on at the time. And to kind of round that out, I brought someone who was very, very uh, accomplished in music and someone and a couple of guys who are very into film to kind of give that whole view of it so it's kind of cool that you and court are doing a very similar thing but with rock and metal as opposed to with doctor who 
who would have ever thought that I could take my my first love, heavy metal, and somehow blend it into my career? I and love have it. Something thoughtful to say about it. So it's been really a, an exciting uh, pet project and uh, really a labor of love, as you are probably aware. Most people that are podcasting don't make any money. It actually costs mm -hmm. money to produce a podcast. It takes a lot yeah. of time, an enormous amount of time to edit and revise and clean up the program before we send it out. So it is a labor. Sometimes it's just a labor. But usually it's a labor of love. Right. That's funny. The joke I always make, if we include something that could potentially be copyrighted material, I'm like, what What are you going to sue us? We make nothing off of this. Yeah. Right. In fact, right. we lose money making this show. So uh, if you're suing us, does that mean you pay us <laughs> since we have negative income? Is that how this works? <laughs> it's logical. We have talked on our show a few times and it's been quite a while about doing an episode where we just talk about other podcasts that we love to listen to other music podcasts and rock and metal profs is top of my list of the ones that I would recommend that our listeners, if they're, especially if they're metal fans to check out, because I think it's a fantastic show. I love it. I always learn something from it and I just love your perspective on your subject matter. Thanks so much, Alan. I really appreciate that. That, you know, that really is why we continue to do it is that we have people like you, we have people on Facebook that hit us up and they say, God, we love the show. And that's what drives us on to continue to do the research. Because as you know, you don't just jump in front of the microphone and start talking. There is a lot of legwork that goes into producing these episodes. Yeah. And if you want to do it right as a historian or as a philosopher, you really have to get it right. You can't make mistakes. And so there are times it might take a month for us to do the research in between our regular jobs before we're yeah. actually able to do an episode. So it's really more about quality than quantity. Cool. Well, to start our discussion off and just to set the stage for our audience, there's a lot of subgenres of metal, and that's a phenomenon we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But why don't we sort of talk about where we fall on that spectrum? Like for each one of us, is there a particular breed of metal that you're more drawn to? Is there something that you like less? Uh, Matt, why don't you start us off since you're our guest tonight? Well, thank you. Um, Court and I have mentioned this many times on the show. We tend to be shaped by our youth, right? Those, those formative years play such right. a role in what we will love throughout the course of our lives. And that's that's me to a T. I still love classic metal, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Metallica, just all the stuff that I grew up with. Although I have matured an awful lot, I was just listening to some Elton John yesterday. I would not have touched Elton John records in the 80s. Would not have, not a chance. And I, you know, I really, I you branch out. I like a lot of blues and whatnot. But in terms of genres, I tend not to be one of those people that compartmentalizes a lot. There's so much of that that goes on within rock and metal. And Anthony, you can speak to the various subgenres of metal because there are people who are quite dogmatic about it. Um, it to me, it's all metal. It's all hard rock. It's all great music. Um, so I would say classic metal um, with an emphasis on more modern groups. I really like System of a Down. I like yeah. Kill Switch Engage, which is often considered grindcore, whatever the hell that means, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So there's so many subgenres, and it it you get hung up in the minutia. I think. Right. I think I agree with that. You know, growing up, I my journey into metal really started with Metallica and then Iron Maiden. And from there, I discovered Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, branched out, you know, uh, Megadeth and other of those kind of classic and early thrash bands. What I found I really like is some form of melody and the melody doesn't have to come from the vocal line. So 
well, Matt just talked about uh, siloing things into genres where I have found that it's useful is, oh, I really like bands that sound like this band, this band, and this band. And someone will come back and say, oh, you like um, melodic death metal. I'm like, great, sure I do. Because if that's what these <laughs> bands are, yeah, I guess I like that. Um, so as I've, I, I could never quite get into the original wave of death metal or um, black metal. I, they're just, there's no melody to it. It feels like it's lacking that hook that pulls me in. But you put a very melodic guitar line under that, like a band like Arch Enemy or In Flames will do. And it really reels me in and I enjoy that. So I guess that's kind of been my latest obsession. But I do also like metalcore. So bands like Kill Switch Engage, as Matt mentioned, are really, really fun. Uh, but, you know, nothing quite beats the classics. I think it's it's true. You know, you're a product of your your younger days in a way. And I, w I was really into the heart, the New York hardcore scene. So I, it, that sort of branched out into like really hard metal. So I, the, I was looking back at my calendars and I keep all my shows I've ever seen written down. So the first two out of three bands at this sh first show I went to were Megadeth and Slayer. So yes. I really, <laughs> I really love the hard stuff, you know, it, almost, almost hard, leaning to hardcore. But then on the flip side, I also really love hair metal. You know, I really love poppy, like poppy melody, like you said, Anthony. I mean, that really means a lot when I hear a song. I want to be able to sing it. So I love Def Leppard. I love Van Halen. I love Guns N' Roses. And, you know, we'll mm. talk all about that in detail, I'm sure. But I so I sort of have this dual duality going on with metal. Yeah, for me, everything, not just my love of metal, everything began with Kiss. Ma, yeah. When I was like 13, I think it was, I was given a uh, love gun. I was given the love gun album for my birthday. And uh, I was like, what is this? And had no appreciation for it, but played it here and there and started to really get into it. And from there, like everything spun off from that starting point. Um, but I think the first like sort of turning point into actual metal was uh, heaven and hell. 1980 and i'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit what's an album and, that is oh my god yes so I, I i really did love the hair metal scene in the 80s because i was like finally metal is like you know yeah. the kind of at the forefront of the music industry at this point um and it kind of got to where it burnt itself out and i find that it doesn't sort of last for me as much as some of the other things do mostly because I find a lot of the subject matter to be very juvenile, very puerile, you know, um, in, in some cases misogynistic. And I, mm -hmm. you know, and I just don't find comfort in listening to it, but there's still some that I really love. Um, rat. I don't think any metal band ever wrote a song as good as rat did. I mean, rat, they're rat. just the, yeah, all those yeah. things lay it down. Oh yeah. Way cool. Junior. Yeah. They just, they knew how to craft a hook and they were good players too. I mean, as far as like lead guitar and stuff like that, just great people. So, you know, I loved that scene at the time. It hasn't stuck with me as much, but bands like Cinderella have, you know, yeah. Cinderella seemed to be on a different level than a lot of those other bands. They seem to have a, a bit more 
depth, at least musically, you know, than some of those other bands did. And I think we've all talked about my particular love from that whole movement being Wasp. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> love them. And, and what I find so fascinating about Wasp, just touching on that, they started out as one of those bands that deliberately courted controversy. They put in a lot of, as Alan, you said, the misogynistic content, almost to be provocateurs. And, you know, they had songs like Animal, yeah. Fuck Like a Beast and Love Machine. But as soon as they got big, by the time their third or fourth album came around, they dialed that back and went in a more mature direction. So it's almost like Blackie Lawless said, right, we've got to where we need to be and now we can do what we really want to do. Mm -hmm which I think right. is really cool. I would like to mention just a couple of things about these, these subgenres and siloing, as you mentioned it, Anthony. I think that metal fans tend to sometimes, some metal fans tend to be quite myopic in that they, they like what they like. And if you, it doesn't fit into that box, it's crap. Yeah. We see a lot of that. And, you know, there's a guy named Martin Popov. He is a really famous yes. rock and roll author. He's, he's published dozens of books. He's really a tremendous, uh, contributor to the world that is rock and metal but if you listen to his podcast he really likes to compartmentalize <laughs> and he will talk about the new wave of british heavy metal was everything that came before and i'm just throwing out a date here he'll say anything that came after march of 1979 cannot be considered part of the new wave of british heavy metal really <laughs> seriously stop it you know so it it becomes pedantic at a certain point it just kind of absurd but to your point, Stephanie, when you talk about your love of glam and hair metal, what stands out about it is that it was just fun. It, it was right. just so fun. much fun. That's right. You know, when Alan Alan was sort of saying, "What? Why do we? What got us into metal? Why do we like it? Whatever." And I literally, I was just thinking, thinking, I'm like, you know what? It the first thing that just comes, it's pure fun. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, also it's it's sort of. Sometimes it can be like an emotional release, especially if like you're at a harder metal show. I feel like it's, you know, you just, you know, you're banging your head, you're getting your, you know, getting all, everything out. <laughs> but I mean, mostly it's just like, I like loud noise and it's fun. Right. And, you know, there's, think about when this really started to happen and think about some of the things that were happening on radio and, and, you know, especially in the early eighties when you've got stuff like air supply. Right. And some of the early journey and you're like, you, you just, it, it needed this kick in the ass. It needed yeah. an injection of adrenaline. And that's what the hair metal scene gave it. Now I, I tend more toward the older stuff. Like, like Matt does. I, I'm a classics guy. I'm a total classic rock dude, even though I listen to everything and I try not to compartmentalize. I listen to funk and classical and folk and, anything you know anything mm -hmm. so you know for but for me going back to the classics with priest and iron maiden and those cats man that is that there's power in those songs and when you get to the hair metal they add fun to that power mm -hmm. and i think it's just an unbeatable mix looking at the history of it one thing that blows my mind is the first black sabbath album which i think most oh. people probably would consider to be the first metal album as opposed to hard rock that came out three months before the Beatles released Let It Be. There was a brief yeah. amount of time when Black Sabbath, the heavy metal scene, and the Beatles coexisted. Yeah. And to me, that's wild. <laughs> Who has their... I want to know first shows. I want to know what everybody saw mm. and when. Kiss, 1979. Kiss. 
the oh, original lineup. Kiss 1979. Same. Shut up. Same. Yeah. I was at Lakeland, Florida, the first show of that tour. And there was all this stuff about, you know, the band wasn't ready to play and they were all in a big mess and they didn't sell enough tickets. So they had to cancel the first night and they blamed it on a cut that Peter got on his hand. And the doctors said he needs one extra day to heal. So, you know, they canceled the first night of their two night run at Lakeland Civic Center. And this was the first show I ever went to. And, you know, I was thinking about this couple of weeks ago when I saw Taylor Swift because I saw her in an arena here in Atlanta, 70,000 people. Lakeland Civic Center is a 10,000 seater and that was considered large at that time. Mm -hmm. And it seemed enormous to my, you know, young and kind of eyes. And that was that show imprinted itself on me in a way that nothing else has since. I can remember details about that show. Not only that, but the opening band, too, because the opening band was Blackjack, which, of course, was the, the first band that Bruce Kulick was in, who ended up becoming Kiss's lead guitar player years later. That is so weird. I, I guess since we've got this connection, I'll go next. Yeah. So I saw Kiss in 1979, November on the dynasty tour original four members begged my police officer father to buy tickets and take me we walk in it is nothing but scantily clad women and a haze of pot smoke yeah and i am certain that he's going to arrest this group of guys next to us that are lighting up i'm certain but we we get through the whole show like you say alan i i can vividly remember them rising out of the stage with oh the four gosh. colors of smoke it was yeah. just such a a religious moment you know a life-changing moment which would send me on this path to rock and roll for the remainder of my life but you know what a you know if you're going to have a first concert as a memory you know just the 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 charisma of the players the the dynamism the the stage show and presentation and I was a mile away and I wasn't close, but, right. but I have just these vivid memories of, of, of watching the crowd and like teen girls wearing next to nothing and me being 11 years old and thinking there's no way I'm getting away with this, right? <laughs> He's going to drag me out of here any second, but dad was cool. Dad awesome. put up with all dad. of it. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it was a neat moment. I didn't have a close relationship with my father. I've, I've told the story before. So, you know, it was a, a rare bonding experience over Kiss. And the next day he wanted to know which album Shouted Out Loud was on. So I got to share. Nice. That Pretty cool. Cool. That's cool. <laughs> so well, I'm, I'll, I'll uh, mention that the, the two of the three bands of the first show I saw were Megadeth and Slayer. And that was at the Ritz in uh, 1985. But the third band was Bad Brains. So there, it was that just showing you the crossover of the hardcore and metal. It, that was really when it started happening. Wow. Um, the second show I saw, just to, to show how much the crossover was, although most of this time I was going to hardcore shows, but the second metal show I saw was Carnivore, Overkill, and Venom at the Ritz. And then the <laughs> oh third gosh. metal show, <laughs> I'm saying any any band with a metal, any show Damn. with a metal band in it, was Anthrax, Cro-Mags, and Metal Church at the Beacon. And I were at that point, I was already working at Island as an intern and maybe part time. And we had anthrax on the label. So I feel oh, like you're, that's you're legit, Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> you're legit. You went and saw Venom in the early Venom. 80s. I yeah. mean, that was my favorite band. Oh, and they really? were a and they were a satanic death metal band. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I, like, I seriously went to a lot of like, a lot of those. Kind oh, of shows. yeah. 
Yeah, but I loved him. And, you know, ministers across the land hated them. They, you know, it was just, they were one of those bands that just, if you were wearing any memorabilia or you had the album, people were asking questions. Are you a Satanist? Do you want to try and save your soul before it's too late? And I mean, that goes to, you know, a few different, I think of two things immediately when you say that, guar, because remember they, I mean, they were just, of course, you know, throwing fake bloody stuff all over in in the audience. And so they really caused a lot of like controversy. And also one of my top three favorite albums, I know we're going to talk about our favorites, but um, Shout at the Devil, which we were talking about before, how that caused such a controversy with the album cover. So, but, but Anthony, well, that's who we want to hear your first show. So my first show, 2003, I was 15. Sorry to make you all feel old. (laughs) And I saw... Blaze Bailey, formerly of Iron Maiden, yeah, in a little pub in West London uh, called the King's Head at Total Fest, which was put on by, uh, I think there was a radio station called something like Total Rock uh, in London. So it was put on by them, and it was Blaze Bailey supported by Orange Goblin and Area 54. Orange Goblin. <laughs> Orange okay. Goblin are great. They're like a very kind of... Uh, if you take kind of early Sabbath, they've got that kind of doom sound to them. They're, they're a cool. lot of fun. Um, but yeah, Blaze was great. I mean, I just uh, branched out into his era of Iron Maiden, and that led me to his band from before Maiden, Wolf Spain, and ultimately to his first couple of solo records. And I was like, wow, this is great. Oh, he's playing down the road in two weeks' time? I'm definitely going to go to that. And what a first show. I was there because it was such a small venue. I was kind of third row in from the stage, up close to, you know, a former singer of Iron Maiden. Yeah. That was fucking cool. <laughs> uh, okay. Anthony, two things. Yes. First of all, Area 54, did they have sort of a disco slant to their sound? They did not. They were very Maiden-esque. That's disappointing. <laughs> That's but they were and great second... as well. I got to know their singer for a while. Okay. Well, and speaking of singers, second, you have to tell the story of working for Blaze Bailey. Oh, yeah. So a few years later, um, I'd started getting involved on online forums and figuring out how to code websites, stuff I've long forgotten because it was 20 years ago now. But Blaze's web uh, webmaster, uh, Dave Conley, decided he was going to step down and actually focus on his real-life career. And there I am, a... 16-year-old school kid with nothing better to do than to volunteer to step up and do it. So I ran Blazer's website, I don't know, for three or four years. Wow. Um, mostly, mostly working with the manager, but once or twice I did get a phone call from Blaze himself. That's really cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was mostly when he fired his manager was when I actually got to speak to him. Um, until I went off to college and got too busy with all that kind of thing and handed it over to someone else. But it was it was a lot of fun. I got a couple of free shows out of it and, uh, you know, got to work with someone who used to sing for Iron Maiden. That's so cool. Yeah, that's amazing. I do want to give out a shout out to my second ever show as well, if I may, because I think Steph will appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It's a band I rag on quite a lot, but my second ever show was Def Leppard. <gasps> oh, really? Yeah, I oh, saw wait. them on I saw them on the X tour at uh, the Brixton Academy, and oh, cool. they were supported by and I know this is a band Alan hates. They were supported by the Darkness. Oh, <laughs> and the Darkness were interesting because they hadn't 
broken through yet. So they were still just doing support acts, kind of a bands that were playing that size of a venue. Another friend of mine saw them supporting Disturbed, which seems like an odd matchup to me. But yeah, definitely watching them uh, support Def Leppard with Justin Hawkins, you know, in his pink spandex uh, cat suit, riding on the back of a roadie playing his guitar through the crowd. <laughs> I was watching them going, okay, yeah, these guys are going to be fucking huge. Yeah. For the record, I don't necessarily hate Darkness. I just hate that first single. I uh, just hate it. And I think Justin Hawkins is a great guy. I think he is such a talent, but I, I hated the sound of his voice on that first song. Oh, my God, it's just terrible. Speaking of other music podcasts, have you checked out his? He's really, really no. interesting. Yeah, it's really? called Justin Hawkins Rides Again. And he interviews different people. He will analyze other bands' songs. He's a really smart and insightful guy. I would love to hear that. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I love that you saw Def Leppard as your second show, though, because I saw them so many times. And actually, that what we were, I was writing down like what my favorite metal shows were, and that was one of them. Well, I saw them two nights in a row at Meadowlands for. Um, they were with Queen playing with Queens, right? Right. Ooh. Is oh my god! Right, wow. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, a weird um, combo. Yeah, that was they, they were great shows. That was for the Hysteria tour, I believe. Oh, wow. That was in the round. Like I, I'm yeah. pretty mm -hmm. sure that had the mm -hmm. yeah. They had the 360 stage. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was really cool. That was pretty much one of my favorites of all time. I would have to say. Okay, now you talk about a band that that sort of came around that time that we were talking about earlier, but definitely stands head and shoulders above the rest. And to this day is a band that I love. And that is Queensryche. Oh yeah. yes, man. And empire is, is just a phenomenal record, but operation mind crime. Holy smokes. Yes. And it, it, it's a shame because after empire, they kind of just, they kept producing stuff, but it was diminishing returns. True. To the point where they've, and up until they got their new singer, they were, yeah. I, I, I felt so sad listening to their newer stuff. But Operation Minecraft and Empire, whew, whew, well, let, I let's say. not forget about Warning, The Warning and yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rage, Rage for, for Order, Order are both great, great albums. Yeah. That arc of, of five albums from their, mm. I'm old enough to remember that EP that came out first of the four songs. <laughs> and that was, we were just like, we were duplicating that on cassette and handing that around to people in high school. That was back when you still, you know, that's how music got out was just word of mouth and how right. tremendous, tremendous. I saw them open for Metallica in 80, 88, 87, something like that. And it was a real, like who should open this show? There was really a debate. Like now there's no question. It would be Metallica that would headline. But at right. that time it was like, no, maybe Queenstrike should be headlining the show. There really was a legit conversation about that. Hmm. You know, just thinking about like the tra trajectories of some bands, like you're just saying, like Def Leppard, thinking about them from like 1980 when that, what it was like, what was it on through the night? On that through was, the night. Yep. Yeah, to just think about like to hysteria. I mean, they really wrote, they really, they changed. I think to me, they changed in a, in a fine way. It's, uh, you know, they definitely got more poppy. I love their hard rock stuff more, but yeah. I, I think they did a great job of sort of transitioning and sort of riding and almost creating too the hair, the sort of that hair metal scene, not, not creating, I shouldn't say that, but riding the wave of 
Yeah, from yeah. a marketing perspective, it was brilliant. That was, yeah. that, was, that album was just massive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. Massive. But that that first Def Leppard album, I love so much. And because I was there, like I was I don't even know how I like got because I never heard it on the radio or anything mm -hmm. like that. I don't know how maybe it was from like some of the rock magazines or something, but as soon as I was in a store at the same time that that record was, I had it in my hand, taking it to the counter and I loved it. It was something very different. It was like, yes, it was like kind of what like kiss and, and priest and stuff like that were doing, but of my generation, you yes, know, it was exactly. a younger band that was kind of coming up around the same age as me. And I just took to it. Yeah. Plus they were, I, I mentioned this on a previous episode. They were the first band I ever saw that wore shirts like t-shirts of their heroes yes you know like they wore a kiss t-shirt and they wore they weren't like promoting themselves as much as they were like showing you their influences and they're connecting with their audience by saying you guys wear kiss t-shirts so do we you guys wear bowie t-shirts so do we and i just I, I i don't know there was something about that that i just gravitated to should we mention our um do our favorite albums yeah sure okay I, I that was yeah when we were putting this show together i was thinking i would i'm really interested to know what each person's uh most important metal album is like what is something that is really personal to you that really made an impact on you and and i'm gonna start i'm, I'm gonna say it was heaven and hell I remember being in my best friend David's house in high school. This was 1980. And we were down in the basement where his older brother, uh, he basically had his complex. It was more than just a bedroom. He had like a you know series of rooms and he was the coolest dude. And we were going through his record collection and uh, a very, it was near the front because he had just bought it. And it was this front cover that had the the little cherubs that were like smoking and stuff and i thought well this looks interesting <laughs> and it wasn't the front cover i flipped it over and saw that charcoal drawing of the band and for some reason that just and i was taking art classes at the time so I, that must be why because i was doing charcoal drawings and i just saw that and i thought whoa who are these dudes and then i read song titles and it was like heaven and hell neon nights children of the sea and i was like i have got to hear this and i put it on and it melted my poor little brain and <laughs> that was 1980 was my biggest musical year as far as like new stuff coming into my life and making this enormous impact on me and that was one of them it was one of probably it is the most important metal album to me because of the time it happened and the impact it had on me that's so cool I love that it was the charcoal drawing that drew you in. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Ah, yes, it is. Isn't that hilarious? It, it, it can be anything. <laughs> what I think is so cool about that drawing is I take a look to Alan, and then I think about the last record Dio had been on before that, which was, of course, Long Live Rock and Roll, which had that drawn portrait of the guys from Rainbow right. on the front cover. So you've almost got that lineage of Dio. And I didn't know that at the time. So it was after that wow. that I started to like get really into this Dio guy and started looking for other stuff that he had done. And I got that last Rainbow album and I was like, hmm, I wonder if that charcoal drawing of Black Sabbath was Ronnie's idea. And he said, you know what would be really cool? Yeah. If somebody did a charcoal sketch of us. Exactly. <laughs> 
can I cheat a little on this question? Because yes. I have one that's important to me, but one that I would also argue is probably the best metal album of all time. Yeah, cheat, so, because sure. I got like three a tie, three-way tie, <laughs> so go ahead. <laughs> the one that I think has the most personal importance is Iron Maiden with Brave New World. That oh, was the man. album that made me a metalhead. I caught them on Top of the Pops playing The Wicker Man, which blew my I, I think oh, yeah. that would have been 2000 I'd have been like 2000 yeah 11 or 12 Incredible and that song. blew my mind at that age and uh I kind of thought I have to hear more and you know going to HMV and they had the stand of the Brave New World albums and I picked up a copy and it just blew my mind and from there it was a descent through my early teenage years of if it was anything but metal, it sucked. <laughs> the album that I think is ostensibly the greatest heavy metal album of all time, and this might be controversial, but I'm going to say it's Judas Priest with Painkiller. Oh, man. Because to me, there is not a single disappointing moment on that album from the opening drum beats of painkiller yeah through to the closing minutes of one shot at glory it is a full-on heavy metal assault only really letting up for a touch of evil which i think is one of the sexiest sleaziest yeah, heavy man. metal songs Preach. ever recorded <laughs> that is an album to make that is a track to make love to my <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> So that's the audiogram clip for next week. Clearly. <laughs> Perfect. To me, the and, and I'm not disagreeing with that pick as the album at all. I, that is a slamming album. But to me, like the ideal and perfect metal anthem is Metal Gods. And no more, yeah. <laughs> more because of later live versions, because that original is okay. It's good. It's very good. But he sings it so differently on later live albums and has more of an edge and more of a growl to his voice. And he sings the chorus very differently because it doesn't have the layered harmonies. He does it himself and he sings it with it like a different melody. And it just brings new dimensions to that song. And it is to me, the summation of everything that I love about metal. And as an opener for a show. Oh, that is absolutely fucking storming. Oh my gosh, yes. That is like that is like a declaration of war. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what about you? Well, just as an aside, I should mention that there's a fantastic film on Netflix called Metal Lords. Have any of you seen it? No. I have not, but oh, it's my watch list you, right now. You are in for such a treat. I'm going to write it, it down. Just, it is magical. It, you are Anthony, you are going to love this movie. The soundtrack is exquisite, and it features Painkiller, as well nice. as Iron Maiden. And it's, it's just fun. It's produced by Tom Morello and... Interestingly, the guy who produced um, Game of Thrones. Oh, wow. It must be and great. It's, it's got some really neat cameos from some of your favorite classic metal stars. And it's a, it's a great story. It's kind of a coming-of-age film. It's got just some of the best. It, it's an excellent soundtrack. I, I recommend this to everyone. Great, great oh film. You will really enjoy it. You probably won't see it, but I've literally just added it to my list. So well, we you will love it. It is it is well worth. In fact, I probably watched it five times. I enjoy it so much. 
Nice. You know, what's interesting is that when I like get onto a new or haven't been on for a while streaming service, the first thing I do is troll through music documentaries and I have not come across this one. Yeah, it's a Netflix it, production. Yeah. How do? How yeah. have I not seen this? It's a drama, not a uh, documentary. Oh. I think that might be why. If it's, you're looking specifically oh, for documentaries. I got it's you. really a I comedy you. is what it is. It's a comedy. <laughs> but boy, it, because it's Morello making fun of a lot of the the idiocy and the 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 what was so ironic about the genre you know for example we all thought that rob halford was just the studliest most machismo <laughs> most petro guy in the right. world and then there's a scene where it pans across the wall and it's all these photos of rob halford looking pretty homoerotic <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> and and halford does have a cameo in it and it's it's just nice. really a fun film you'll enjoy it but but to your question stephanie um first i should say that I find it very difficult to come up with the best of yeah. or top 10. I find this very difficult to do. So arbitrarily, I will say Destroyer, which was my first Kiss album that yeah. I bought with my own money. Although I became a Kiss fan a few years before that when my uncle gave me the first Kiss album, just the cover of them in makeup, which, like you said, Alan, what the hell is this? Yeah, I had I had to have it. I had to listen to it. And I had a kid's record player, one of those little box record players. It must have got 10,000 spins, right? I right. know every song by wow. heart. So fantastic. Um, best metal album. That's really tough, Anthony. I, my friend Court would say Rust in Peace from Megadeth. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, there's so many. Um, my personal favorite album as an adult, the one that means the most to me, is actually a live album called Strangers in the Night from UFO, which is my all-time favorite band. Yes. And that is that album is transformative to me. It's it's one of the only albums that I can continue to listen to year after year, month after month, and it never gets old because it's just got some of the most brilliant guitar playing. Uh, the band is at their apex in terms of being tight they've been performing live for five years it's uh, you know it's the band is building tour crescendos just before uh you know just before michael shanker leaves the band in a, in a big huff and over the production <laughs> of strangers of the night because he thought that the guitar work was sloppy you listen to it it's perfect absolutely perfect shanker but, being uh, a perfectionist diva surely not yeah yeah but uh <laughs> If you've not heard Strangers in the Night, just listen to the 11 minute long, uh, you know, Rock Bottom, which is, you know, one of their yeah. you know, kind of tr- copyright songs. It is it is incredible. Great album start to finish song selection, everything. But and to think that they're they're performing this on analog equipment. It's recorded in the fall of 1978 and it sounds just as fresh as it would if they produced it on digital equipment today. It is incredible. Wow. You know, I cannot believe this, but I actually saw UFO live. And I I think I mentioned this on one of your posts on the rock and metal profs thing. Um, And it was 1981. It was one of those stadium shows that I used to go to all the time called the Rock Super Bowl. And it was 81. And of all things, Heart was the headliner. And that's why I went, of course. But there was Cheap Trick and Blue Oyster Cult and somebody of firefall of all things and ufo was the opening band and i i can remember great detail about everything about that day except for ufo like i have no recollection (laughs) of even though i know i got there before the shows started but i just don't remember a single thing and i wish i did because at the time i had no idea who ufo was but now you know i'm like i've got this blank space in my memory 
that I really wish I could go back and relive because now I would appreciate seeing UFO in a way I didn't at the time. Yeah. And that was like my third or fifth show or something like that. I was still, you know, kind of young in the scene. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to ask you guys, if speaking of films, did you ever see Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal oh, Years? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. By Penelope Spheris. Anthony, you must see it. You must see it. Yeah. You should also see the first one, the punk the punk one. Yes. But the, the Metal really Years good. was. I mean, I check them both out. Blackie Lawless was. Yes. You like Out Wasp? No, no, it's Chris. It's oh, Chris Holmes. It's right. Chris, it's Holmes. Chris Holmes. Holy sorry, sorry, shit! Chris. He was at the pool scene. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Don't Anthony. don't spoil it. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I had to mention that before I tell yeah. my albums. But it's that, amazing. Yeah, before I forgot. <laughs> but um, all right. So I just I, I have th like I couldn't think of of a favorite favorite, but I think of. Of all the three that I picked, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Des Destruction might just have to be my favorite because I, I think they just perfectly, it was just like the zeitgeist of the time. Oh, look, it's right there with Matt. <laughs> it's right there. I mean, I don't think there's a, there's, every song is like perfection. They, they had, they just had some magic going on right at that moment in time. And I, and they, you know, that, that, that might be my favorite. Um, and you you talk about an album cover that grabs your I have attention. both the, like the ones you, yeah the one that was banned and I yeah. have the oh, yeah yeah, That's yeah. Cool. I got I them was, both I was working at a record store at the time and we unboxed that day's shipment Oof. and we pull this thing out and we we're like what yeah. the fuck is this so we immediately had to put it on and it, it, it was like you yeah. knew that this was going to game change everything yeah. from that point that was actually also uh, probably of uh, of all my shows that might have been my favorite i saw them at the Ritz. well i saw them many times but i saw them at the ritz for that album and that was just like a small venue you know i also saw them do acoustic at cb's canteen which is really great also but so i think that my that's what my top favorite but also coming in very close van halen um diver down i know it's not the most <laughs> I know it's it's not really even that metally. It's just almost kind of poppy compared to their other stuff, but I love it. And if I don't, you know, hear Hang 'em High sometimes, I just like will go crazy. Like I have to put it on and just hear Hang 'em High. <laughs> but Stephanie, aren't there like four cover songs on that album? There are. There are like yeah. four or five cover songs on that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's definitely like half the album is half not the album their is, own stuff. Is, is yeah. not theirs. Yep. But um, so number three is Shout at the Devil. Because again, I also think that they kind of there was a zeitgeist of that moment also the 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 Hollywood you know L.A. scene starting to really break big. I mean, look, Van Halen obviously was already big, but Motley Crue really kind of nailed that like glam rock meets like hard rock meets pop, and they just did it right. And that that album has so many great songs. Like, oh my God, uh, looks a kill. I think Red Hot might be my favorite song on that album, but there's Shout at the Devil. I know you don't like Helter Skelter, that cover album, right? <laughs> it's, it's not bad. favorite. It's, just, it's not bad. <laughs> not bad. I agree. Anyway. Too Young to Fall in Love is amazing. Bastard yeah, is a great song. Oh, Some yeah. Really good stuff on there. One yep. of the great, bands great I used album. to be in played Bastard, and it's so fun. Cool. <laughs> <It's a> cool <laughs> song. Yeah. So the, I think those are my top three. 
geez, I didn't know we were going to do top three. I shortchanged myself. Well, I guess, you know, I couldn't, I just could not really pick one. No, I, I understand. I totally get it. Yeah. What I was wanting to talk about was just how there is in the ether, there's this idea that metal was killed by grunge. We hear this all the time. You hear famous artists say, yeah, back when, you know, Nirvana came out, that was the end of heavy metal. But we've done several shows about this and we've had a lot of listeners chime in and it seems to be that there's a preponderance of evidence, I would say, that that points to metal actually killing itself. And if you look at how derivative metal became, how formulaic it became, just the 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 slew of bands that came out in the late 80s, Kicks and Firehouse and too many to name, but they were just cookie cutter bands, yeah. great musicians usually. The guitar player was always amazing in those bands, right? They, there was always White Lion, Vito Brada is incredible. He's an amazing right. guitar player, but White Lion was just another cookie cutter hair metal band that had a couple of, you know, soft rock hits that got popular when the children cry, that sort of thing. Um, but if you look at just, if you go and watch some old classic metal videos from the late 80s, even the moves that they're making, the yep. posing, the so flipping of the hair, yeah. you know, Kip Winger doing 17, totally inappropriate oh today, by the way. Everyone's favorite punching bag, Kip Winger. Yeah. Well, okay, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I will come to the defense of Kip Winger. Winger's new album is spectacular. It is really, really good. In fact, their last three or four albums have been really, really good. They're legit. I don't know if you know this about Kip Winger, but he actually went to school for yeah. about a decade. Yeah. He won a Grammy for one of his compositions, or he was, I don't know if he won, maybe he was nominated, but he is a legit composer. Yeah. And yeah. their new music is very, very good. Right. But if you go back and you watch that 17 video, I think he maybe touches the strings of his guitar twice in the entire <laughs> video. It's just nothing but him undulating on stage and flipping his hair and wetting his lips. It's like, ugh. And twirling. He was a dancer, too. So it was That's good. true. Yeah. yeah. But it was just everything I hated about the genre. So it yeah. needed to die a natural death. And I think it did. You know, in Tom Bojor's book, uh, we discussed this at the at on the program that we we did with him. But he, there is a quote from one of the musicians and one of the metal musicians at the end, near the end of his book saying just as what you said. I mean, it really was there. Everyone was like, oh, Nirvana killed. And the, the, they, the band came to their defense and said, no, you know, actually it was just, it was just time for it to die. And that is, there's always a new thing and a new thing needs to happen and always will happen. There's always, that is what happens, you know, and it, and really did burn itself out. I mean, it became a parody of itself. Yeah, and and then you look at what carried on in the early '90s in the metal scene, and that was when bands like Pantera came yes. in with something a lot more brutal. So oh, the yes. scene, you know, massively shifts because, to your point, Steph, the the whole glam metal scene had just burnt itself out, and there was nothing left to be done there, really. And even Pantera is a bit of an outlier because that's as the scene mm. is fading. They are the only band that remains somewhat relevant in the metal scene in the early 90s. Of course, I should mention that Rust in Peace comes out in 1991 mm -hmm. um, and Justice for not and Justice, um, uh, the Black Eye comes out in 91. Yeah. So it carries over a little bit into the early 90s, but we really see it replaced, I suppose replaced is the word, 
by grunge, but I never really considered grunge to be a genre so much as it was just the next iteration of hard rock. Mm -hmm. Stone Temple Pilots and Alice in Chains. I mean, Alice in Chains is a heavy metal band. Oh, yeah. Right? They're just a metal band. Great. And that that is certainly the way that I've seen them talk about themselves, especially when they look back on that time. They didn't think of themselves as in a different genre. They were continuing from the influences that they picked up from those metal bands. Yeah. But I think what's so interesting, and I realize I'm derailing us from the whole genre conversation, but what you had, maybe, maybe it actually tallies into it, but metal goes a lot more underground and you get a lot more innovation in the extreme metal scene. Right. And that's when you start to get some really weird shit coming out. I mean, that's the the playground for Norwegian Norwegian black metal bands burning down churches and shit like that. (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. 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 But also, you know, that's when, and, and, you know, we have talked before about uh, Anthony and I are big prog heads as well. And prog was going through a big transition in the 80s as well. And so the early 90s is when you start to see sort of that amalgam of prog and metal happening where you get this new iteration of both of those things and, and bands like Dream Theater. Dream yes. Theater's first album oh, yes. comes out in 89. What a their great sec- album. Yeah. Their, their second album, though, Images mm-hmm. and Words, which I think is still the best album they ever did, was 92. So you can see, you know, other, other bands coming along and picking up the mantle that these other bands have sort of dropped off. Definitely. Dream Theater kill me, though, man. I'm sorry. I know they it, do. Let me show you how much of a virtuoso I am, but without actually paying any attention to how a song should actually be structured. <laughs> well, there's a point, I guess. <laughs> I wouldn't state it that strongly, but I do understand where you're coming from. <laughs> I just have to say, I'm going to totally also kind of derail our this this topic too. We've been talking the whole time and we haven't mentioned one single female singer or bander. Can you, isn't that interesting? I just want to say that that's interesting. And I want to say that my, I, one of the favorite voices that I have in metal, it, that I know in metal is Doro, Doro Pesci. Oh, yeah. You know, like there's so many, there's, there's not me, actually, there's not so many, but there's, they're definitely like Anthony, you turned me on to, uh, Alyssa White Gloss. Alyssa, yeah, yeah. Like there, there's so Incredible. many females too mm-hmm. that like, you know. And to, to that point, I found a really great playlist on Spotify. It's one of their official ones, but it's called Heavy Queens, mm-hmm. oh. uh, which is not a reference to their weight. It's a reference to the music they play. Don't no, Nobody needs to get offended and white knight this. Uh, but it's <laughs> entirely a playlist of current metal uh, sung by women with a mm-hmm. variety of styles as well. It's not yeah. all melodic it's not all screaming it really is across the board and it's a really really great playlist to hear oh that's cool uh more women in metal i really enjoy it i mean we there was you know there was of course vixen and whatever and they were great musicians too vixen they're you know roxy is you know really great but um there was a lot of local bands that i that i know that maybe other people do but for example my friend yana from from Wench and from, and then her other band PMS, like it was hardcore, but they also metal. And really she has one of the best voices, like rock voices I've ever heard. It's just a weird kind of um, like, there's just a lack of kind of thing in that area. Absolutely. And you bring up a very good point. And 
you know, it, it's in a way hard to have that conversation about women in metal because for the longest time, there just weren't that many. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had Vixen for a while and we had Lita Ford for a while, but yeah. their success was very limited because it just wasn't a mm-hmm. scene that kind of accepted women as metal rock stars. Right. I don't think. And that was a sausage fest in the 80s. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. In Tom's book, you know, you, you read about how Vixen, what a tough time they had yes. being accepted in any place that they played. To Anthony's point, it, it's we're at a point now where we do have women in metal. And this is it, it's changing the whole game, I think. And I'm you know and thankful you ha- for that. You have some pretty big bands now, bands like Hailstorm yeah. in this moment. Um, unleash the archers, even butcher babel- babies, who I don't particularly like, but yeah. they're a thing. Um, you know, forgetting I, one of the best, Nightwish. Of course, oh, yeah. Nightwish. Nightwish. Are there? Flora Janssen is one of the greatest vocalists on earth. Wow. Period. She is unbelievable. If you've not, uh, they she did a show when she first joined the band in 2013 at Vakken. That live show, you can find it on video. It is it showcases her voice so brilliantly. She is one of the greatest vocalists on earth. Just spectacular. So we are seeing a moment for women, particularly in symphonic metal over in Europe. I think it's much bigger in Europe than it is here. Epica is another band with a great singer, Simone Simon. There are some really great female and they're they're front women, right? We also see some of them in the the role of guitarist uh, Nita Strauss. Nita Strauss. She just put out an album a few days ago. She is incredible. She's, of course, um, Cooper's guitar player. That album is fucking fantastic it is it, the new one it's so good it's already in line to be possibly my album of the year wow and anthony good. and yeah I don't know you, you turned me on to her too anthony she is related to the austrian composer johann strauss mm-hmm. she has a right. direct link to him wow. and it's in her blood man because she is just a virtuoso absolutely so I kind of wanted to go back to the point Matt was originally trying to make about genres before oh, yeah, we please do. <laughs> massively derailed it, since we had a little bit of an offline conversation about this before the show. So I kind of know where it's going. But Matt, do you want to continue? Well, I, you know, I think I said, I, you know, I tried to hit on the the basics is that I think rock fans tend to get really hung up on I like black metal versus symphonic metal versus classic metal. I try not to get caught up in all of that. It's all just great music or it's not, right? And Court and I talk about this a lot, him being a philosopher. Everything is so subjective, best, worst, greatest. It just depends on your your point of view. So what I may not like, like I don't like Sade Anger, the Metallica album. I think it sounds like, you know, Oscar the Grouch banging on the lid of his trash can. That's the yeah. snare drum, right? We all We all think that, it's okay. <laughs> but there are probably some fans out there of Metallica for whom St. Anger was their first album and it means something special to them. Who am yeah. I to take that from them by saying oh, that album is crap? Right. Yeah. I need to find this and send it to you. There were a couple of fans who re-recorded St. Anger with good production and proper snare drum sound. And it actually becomes, I wouldn't say good, but it becomes <laughs> listenable. Tolerable. So, but... <laughs> Where we were going in our conversation before we started recording was, you know, in general, metal fans kind of generally like to see themselves as kind of the other or kind of different to a lot of people. You know, there's the whole aspect of people don't understand us. Mm. Uh, and this kind of comes back to why the glam scene 
was such an anomaly and ultimately why it burnt itself out because it was mass media it was extremely popular mm. and that doesn't really fit with the metal aesthetic and i think the tendency to categorize and go into subgenre and sub subgenre and and what have you is part of that to say oh, oh you're a mainstream metalhead well you're clearly not true cavalta because i'm into brutal technical death metal and fuck everyone who likes technical brutal death metal right <laughs> you know what's interesting about that anthony is that you know you said why did glam metal you know that was actually a shocker at first you know guys with makeup like well i mean look kiss of course i'm i'm not saying that it had never been done alice cooper whatever but you know the the whole sunset strip scene and you know motley crew painting their faces and you know same that that was that was a, to, intended to shock and it did you know but then of course it became very much then then you got you know warrant and and you know poison or whatever yeah. I mean, not to say again not to say that is a bad thing or a good thing that's just that's what happened so Fucking it became warrant. more mainstream <laughs> <laughs> hey i liked uncle tom's cabin i thought that was a great song <laughs> that was a pretty good song I just okay. think cherry pie is such an abomination. Oh, it's an oh, abomination. Well, so do they, but they still <laughs> like the money they made off of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Anthony, I defy you to watch that video and not smile. <laughs> I probably would. I probably would. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back with our picks of the week. I love that Star Trek does what adventure programs do. It's fun characters going on adventures, wearing colorful outfits, but it tries to be more than that. It tries to say something more about humanity and tries to encourage us to be better people. I love that it gives a really positive and really hopeful view of the future. I like that you never know what you get with Trek, from Captain Pike to Picard to Captain Proton. I like the Ferengi. <laughs> Earth Station Trek, a show where we talk about Star Trek from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. All right, and we are back. So, Anthony, I know that there's a new release that came out this week that you are itching to talk about. So let's start our picks of the week off with you. And I already mentioned it. It's Nita Strauss's new album, uh, which is just, it's phenomenal. And, you know, she'd been slowly dropping singles off of it for a while. I think the first one, uh, which is the Wolfie Feed featuring Alyssa White Glass, I think that came out uh, probably... If it wasn't the beginning of this year, it might have even been as far back as sometime last year. But the quality throughout is just amazing. And she's got some really, really great guest vocalists on there. Uh, David Draymond from Disturbed is one of them. Uh, Dorothy from the band Dorothy is on there. And um, That's a good song. Lizzie Hale, mm -hmm. um, Chris Motionless, just the guy from uh, In Flames, and even Alice Cooper is on there lending his vocals to a track. So the whole thing is just, it, it's got a bunch of amazing vocalists backing her up, but honestly, she doesn't even need them because you listen to it and the, the composition of the songs themselves, which is mostly written by her, along with the virtuosity of her guitar playing, it's just mind blowing. It's a very, very well put together album. And it's been a long time since an album pulled me in on the first listen quite the same way that this one has. I really love it. So go check that out. Amazing. All right, Matt, who you got? Sure. I'll piggyback, pig, uh, 
excuse me, I'll piggyback off of Anthony. Uh, the Nita Strauss album, you mentioned the song, The Wolf You Feed. The video for that is one of the most menacing and sexy videos you'll ever watch. Go check it out. It will absolutely blow your mind. The album that I'm going to pick is called Elegant Weapons. Uh, and the title of the album is, is Horns for a Halo. It is a, yes. pro it is a project um, with uh, Richie, the guitar player from Judas Priest as well as Scott Travis, the drummer. He played a role in the recording of the album. It also features, I believe, the bass player from Uriah Heep and the drummer from Accept. And they are currently touring in Europe. It is a great modern um, classic metal album, I would say. Great uh, song composition. Um, there's not a bad track on the album. It's brilliantly produced. Um, and I, I just think it's so far for me, it's the best thing that's come out in 2023. Highly recommend Elegant Weapons. And isn't Ronnie Romero the vocalist on that yes, as well? Yes, Ronnie Romero. Yes. And I found this from your podcast, Matt. Oh, great. And I listened to it and I sent it to Anthony and I'm like, have you heard this? <laughs> yeah, man, it's really good. Oh, my God. And I was God. like, well, th this sounds like uh, what it would sound like if the guitarist from Judas Priest and the singer from the latest version of Rainbow did a record together. <laughs> oh, wait, that's exactly what this is. <laughs> that's exactly right. right. <laughs> it, but... Just very quickly to circle back on the Wolf You Feed video, Matt, the, I, I was messaging Alan during the week, and I think it was Alan. I said, yeah, I think my sexuality is Anita Strauss and Alyssa White Gloves in that video. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, they're an amazing pairing. Stephanie, you've been listening to anything this week? I have, but it's literally nothing to do with metal. Is that okay? Are we allowed yeah, to do that? <laughs> okay. So this is actually a friend of ours who's an amazing vocalist. His name is Tom Lucas, and his band is called Sad About Girls, which is a great name for a band, I think. <laughs> um, he released a, it's kind of like a two song, I don't know. There's no A side and B side anymore. It's just, right. <laughs> it's what it is, but it's called the cats will know. And the two songs are called lonely one and ready as I'll never be. And Tom has one of the best, most beautiful melodic, what a tone to his voice. He, he, and his harmonies are amazing. And I have to say my husband, Bob Perry played guitar on the second song. So, <laughs> uh, it is really though, just beautiful. Uh, so go, Check out Sad About Girls. You will not be sorry. You can find it on Bandcamp. As soon as you said that, I was like, I've heard of this. I yeah. know this. I've come across this somewhere. It was Bob. He posted yeah. it on his Facebook or whatever. Yeah, he's and... been working with Tom on a lot of new songs that Tom's yeah. got. And they're so good. Yeah. Okay, so this is one from a few weeks ago, and I've been wanting to mention it uh, ever since then, but something else has always come up, like a documentary I had just seen, and that was like more appropriate for whatever topic we were doing that week. But this is the new Foo Fighters album, but here we are. Um, you know, I've been, I've been a, you know, not a hardcore Foo Fighters fan, but I, I like them a lot. I've been sort of following them for a long time now. And, you know, I like all their stuff, but, you know, not everything to the same degree. I kind of felt like when Rescued came out as a single, I was like, holy shit, that is one of the best Foo Fighters singles I've ever heard. The album uh, finally came out and, you know, it is, this is in the wake of the loss of Taylor Hawkins, of course, their best friend, their drummer. And it is a seriously dark album 
I mean, not dark in the sense of depressing, but it deals with a lot of stuff of loss and regret and all this kind of stuff. And it is, it is amazing. I really, really love it. Rescued is the first track and I think it's fantastic. There is a 10 minute song called the teacher, which is great. The final track rest. Oh my gosh. The whole album is just great. And I absolutely love it. So that is my recommendation for this week. All right. Well, I tell you, that was that was one of the quickest and most fun hours that we have spent on this show. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. It was an honor. Nice to meet all of you and in, in the flesh, so to speak, the digital flesh. The digital the flesh. Digital yeah. virtual yeah. flesh. That's my that's the name of my new metal band, Digital Flesh. <laughs> yes. I love what it. genre? What subgenre are you? <laughs> Postmodern death metal. Yes. <laughs> well, it's so nice to meet you too in the virtual flesh. <laughs> so Matt, you and Court have to come on again. Okay. And I've been like scheming this for a while now, and I was planning on inviting you guys around November 11th, which is Metal Day. We'll have you guys on then. We'll do a show on, we'll like pick a specific topic or something and we'll, you know, dive into that. But Thank you so much for joining us. It's yeah, and been... I would just—I'd like to invite all of you on on our podcast as well, Anthony. Now that I know you know you've got this love of of death metal and melodic death metal, and Stephanie, no one told me you had such serious cred when it comes <laughs> to like your hardcore and the, the early metal scene. That's very cool. We would love oh. to have you on to talk about that and your work in the industry as well. Oh, cool! Thank you. Yeah, please, please. So at one point or another, we'll have all three on. Sweet. Right Look on. forward right. to it. I love it. All right. All right, so we will be back next week doing something. I don't even know what. Until then, Stephanie, where can people find you if they want to find more about you on the internet? You can find me at <laughs> thereirebirds.com. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music, on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds, and on Bandcamp under my name too. And of course, like all the streaming platforms like Spotify. Sweet. Anthony. Well, as usual, you can also find me on the Watches in the Fourth Dimension podcast. As I've mentioned, we are about to come off of hiatus. We are actively working on new material. But until yes. that's out, you can go back and hear all of our previous episodes. We are watching our way through Doctor Who from 1963 until now. And you can find that on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stip. Well, not Stitcher anymore. Stitcher's gone. Right. <laughs> but on all the places, wherever you like to get your podcasts, we're probably there. So go check us out. You can also check out our socials at, at Watchers4D, and that's on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So please do check it out if you're into Doctor Who. All right, Matt. You can find the Rock and Metal Profs podcast uh, on any of your major streaming platforms, we're out there, Spotify, Apple, you name it. And you can look us up on the Rock and Metal Profs Facebook page if you'd like to talk to Court or myself. And we appreciate the listens. And I have written a few books. I've published a few books. And I do one or two or 15 or 18 podcasts. I only do three. <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating. Um, but you can find all of that nonsense at cosmiccreative.com. K-O-Z-M-I-C creative.com. Okay. We will be back next week. Matt, thank you again for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure having you with us. The honor was mine. Thanks so much. 
And until next week, everybody keep rocking on. Rock on. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.